pray. Dear Heavenly Father, once again, we have the privilege of coming before you, assembled together here on a Thursday night, and ask that you would guide and direct our study of your word, and Lord, that you would just give wisdom not to get lost in the details, but to uh, make clear and simple sense as much as is humanly possible for us to understand these future prophecies in your word. We ask you to encourage us and strengthen us as we serve you. In your name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. God's grace is trying to pick up some of the um, extra revelation, not in the book of Revelation, prophecies surrounding the end times. Now, Uh, There is quite a bit of variance here as you read commentaries and people ideas. There are at least seven major ideas of when these events may unfold. And uh, breaking them down as as simply as we can. Uh, There's some people that believe that this passage is just symbolic and has nothing to do with reality. Uh, The only problem we have with that idea is God does not give that kind of detail when he's talking about symbolic things. I mean, he names people, he names places, he names events that are going to happen. It is very, very unlikely that uh, we would be able to accept or that that would be anywhere near what God intended when he gave all the details he did in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. So, therefore, we're talking about real events. So, the first thing that comes into people's minds, it must have already happened. Well, it can't have already happened because the Bible says in the book of Ezekiel, we'll get to the verses, uh, verse 30, chapter 38, verse 8, the latter years. So, therefore, it is a future event. Okay, the book of Ezekiel was written... Uh, Let's see here, trying to just run through my mind. If you know how many facts were revolving around in here, it would scare you. Uh, I'm hoping a few catch and get thrown out in proper order here. Uh, But the book of Ezekiel was written during the captivity. Uh, This would have been shortly after 600 B.C., about 550, 560, somewhere in that neighborhood there. And uh, the book of Ezekiel, about 400 and some years before Christ. Now, no event between 400 years before Christ's birth and today fulfill the events as described in the book of Ezekiel. So, the simplest answer is we're still looking toward a future event that has not transpired yet. That would put this as part of the scope and sequence of the book of Revelation, talking about the tribulation period and the events that happened there. And uh, that's where we place it, say, when? Well, nobody knows for sure prophecy is best understood after it happens. But there are some things, and we're just going to go through uh, these two chapters. I'm not going to try to read both chapters in their entirety tonight. Uh, That would take about a third of our time, and uh, I would encourage you to read these things, but just a few reasons why we believe these events are yet future. 
Uh, we, I do not believe that Ezekiel 38 and 39 are talking about the battle of Armageddon. There are some people who believe that that is the case. But we have different people. We have different times. We have different circumstances. We have different things happening. Uh, and just to name a few. The battle of Armageddon, who does the destroying? The Lord Jesus Christ, personally, as he rides with the armies of, of heaven behind him. The key to the battle of Armageddon, though, it's talking about the valley of Jehoshaphat, the, the plain of Megiddo there. It's also connected to Jerusalem. The blood will flow 120 miles. That's the entire length from the city of Jerusalem up the Jordan Valley to the plains of Megiddo. This battle is going to happen on the mountains of Israel. You can't have two, the same event happening in two different places at the same time. Does that make sense? Uh, in the battle of Armageddon, they are destroyed by the sword that goes out of the mouth of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Here, they are destroyed by natural elements. And yes, there, are, there is other things that are involved in the Battle of Armageddon. But here, one-sixth of the army survives. Battle of Armageddon, nobody survives. Read through here, the Battle of Gog and Magog... It is the confederated armies as well as the natural occurrences. They turn upon each other and battle each other. There is no division of, of the armies at the Battle of Armageddon because they're all fighting against Jesus Christ. Uh, the purpose of the Battle of Gog and Magog is enrichment, spoil. We'll touch on that as we go through our outline. The purpose of the Battle of Armageddon is to unseat the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And, of course, it fails. And so we believe that there are two different events. I, I'm not alone in that belief. It isn't something that I just came up with, but uh, others agree. And as you read through the passages, I hope you will see the difference. We'll be spending a night, probably not next Thursday night, uh, possibly, but uh, on the Battle of Armageddon. But our goal here is just to see this great battle. This will be one of the, quote-unquote, great world battles, and it is yet to come. It will change the scope, and I think we can lay out a sequence. It's not necessarily put into your outline tonight that will help you see where it fits in. So let's just start in verse 1. And the word of the Lord came unto me. This is a prophet Ezekiel saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth in all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them that are clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields and all them handling swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them. 
and all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all his bands, the house of Togorma, of the north quarters and all his bands, and many people with thee. Be thou prepared, and prepare for thyself thou and thy company that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard unto them. So here are the participants listed in all of these strange names in the Bible that people like to mispronounce and try to figure out who in the world they're talking about. Well, it's very simple. Gog is mentioned in the Bible several different places. And it is talking about directly north of the land of Israel into what we would call, you come right up the Mediterranean coast there and you get into, you go through Syria, what's the next country? Turkey. That's where Gog is, is in the land of Turkey. And of course, in recent history, uh, many of those nations have found freedom, but in just going back a few years, many of them were satellite nations of the former Soviet Union. And people have made a big deal because if you look in here, that it says the chief prince, that is Rosh. Does that make any idea, the chief prince of Rosh? Uh, has anybody ever heard of a place called uh, Russia? It's the same base word. And so even though it says the chief prince of Meshach and a preacher once ago, many years ago, he said there's a very close connection in the languages between Meshach and a little city we know about called Moscow. Uh, does anybody see the similarity between Tubal and Tubalsk? Uh, these people, of course, were living in that land in northern Turkey and and have moved up into what we would call modern-day Russia. And this seems to be the simplest definition. And by the way, who is the most active nation in the Syrian conflict today? Is it a coincidence that it's Russia? No. No. We're watching prophecy line up. Um, Let me ask you a question. Do you think Libya will ever be confederated with the United States? But might they uh, go back to the mother that gave them all of their arms and armament and supplied them their planes and everything during the Cold War and all of that? I mean, we see the connections today that are talked about in the Bible. Persia, that's Iran. Of course, they're not in the news today. Nobody cares about what's going on in Iran. Isn't that correct? Don't you almost wish it were that way? But we see Iran... Iraq. Now, Ethiopia gets thrown in there. Now, not much is going on in the land of Ethiopia today. They're trying to recover, but there's this little satellite of Ethiopia 
that has been in the news for a very long time. Uh, does anybody remember the Somali pirates? All the same area. Uh, by the way, Libya, Somalia, Iran, Iraq, and big parts of Ethiopia all have the same religion, Islam. And historically, Islam has sided with Russia and the communists. Uh, they did during World War II. Uh, well, actually, they sided a lot with the Nazis during World whoever happened to be there. But we, we see today in our modern papers, now Gomer, that is supposed to be the best we can understand, the Germanic peoples. That's Germany, Austria, many of the Germanic languages in Turgorma is Turkey. And guess who is rattling the saber today? Turkey is. Syria just shot down one of their planes a couple weeks ago. Uh, they're wanting to be avenged of that. And so we have some really interesting scenarios here. If there's going to be some solution to the Syrian problem, what is the simplest solution? For Russia to install a puppet government. Not for you and I, but just watch and see if something like that doesn't happen. It's been in the works for a long time. And the plan of the battle is for these people to come down from the north through the land of Syria. And what is at the northern border of Israel with Syria? Now, I've never been there. I've just heard about it. But you can stand in the land of Israel on the Golan Heights, mountains. And guess what you can see? Damascus in the daytime. They're going to be coming down from the north into the land of Israel. And here's the people that are doing it. Now, Germany is the only strange one in the group. Everybody else is connected, but I'll tell you what, we're seeing some really weird things happen in Europe. Some strange alignments are, are going on there, but the idea of Persia, Iran, Iraq, Libya, Turkey, Russia, the Russian satellites... Now, here's the circumstance. Look at verse 8. After many days thou shalt be visited, in the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have, always, which have been always waste, but it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. Now, here's one of the reasons why we do not believe that the battle of Armageddon and Magog and Gog are the same battle. Because we have Israel dwelling in the land safely. After the middle of the tribulation period, 
that's not possible because Jerusalem is going to be given to the Gentiles. They will not dwell in the land. In fact, the Jewish people are going to have to exit from the land and they're going to be hidden in the desert according to the prophecies of the book of Revelation for those 42 months, three and a half years, the second half of the tribulation. So it would seem that this battle, for our understanding, would have to happen somewhere in the first part of the tribulation period. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you remember the four horsemen? The four first horse we believe to be the antichrist he goes conquering he's given a bow no arrows what does the red horse do he takes peace from the earth he's got an army that fights and we uh, go back to i'm sorry i'm getting it confused here let's go to revelation just want to pick this up. Revelation chapter 6. And we have the... Um, sorry, verse 4. The red horse. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given unto him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth... And that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. Now, we can't say that the battle of Gog and Magog is going to happen under the red horse. But it would certainly fit there. And if it doesn't, uh, right there, we can go over to chapter 9. And we get into the trumpet judgments. And we have... Uh, the sixth angel in verse 14, and he unleashes an army of 200 million soldiers that in the space of a little over a year, a year, a month, an hour, I mean a day and an hour to slay the third part of men. There just might be a connection here between what's going on in the book of Revelation and what's going on in the book of Ezekiel. There's certain opportunity for great armies to be on the march during the, revel the period of the tribulation. I heard, read in one commentary, it said, well, there's no battles mentioned in the middle of the tribulation, therefore this battle can't happen then. Well, wait a minute. We have the red horse. We have an army of 200 million men marching and killing a third part of the entire population of the world. Uh, it sounds like we could have something going on here, but how does the tribulation start? With the signing of the peace treaty with Israel. The nation that was given to the sword and brought back into its land. There's going to be a peace treaty signed. And this nation, this group of nations, are going to look at the wealth and the prosperity and the security of Israel. And they are going to march in battle against Israel. Now, wouldn't this be an interesting scenario 
that the battle, the army of Antichrist uses this battle to move its troops into the land of Israel, ending up in the desecration of the temple, which happens in the middle part of the tribulation period. And we can see a series of events falling into place. Again, not being dogmatic, but there's a great earthquake spoken of here. There's an earthquake spoken of in the middle of the tribulation period. It says here in the book of Ezekiel, uh, let's look here, uh, verse 20 of chapter 38. Uh, let's, uh, let's get back to verse uh, 17. Thus saith the Lord God, Art thou he of whom I have spoken in an old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them? And it shall come to pass at the same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day... There shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel, so that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heavens and the beasts of the earth and all the creeping things that creep on the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord, every man's sword shall be against his brother. And I will plead with him with pestilence and with blood, and I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him an overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself. I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 12, we'll just touch on this. I skipped over that. To take a spoil and to take a prey. To turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods and dwell in the midst of the land. Now, the purpose, Israel is one of the most productive nations per capita on the face of the earth. They produce orange juice, they produce hay, they produce all kinds of immeasurable things. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, and so these are very old facts, but uh, they said if the United States owned the Dead Sea and the mineral rights and the value that was there, they could write every American citizen. About that time, there were 250 million of us, if I remember correctly, a check for $220,000. That is the valuation of the mineral rights and the things that are just contained in the Dead Sea area. Why do you think people fight over those things? I remember uh, an old-time preacher talking about he had visited the land of Israel and, and uh, there was a farmer in his group and he said, listen, we get two, sometimes three cuttings of hay in a season. And the Israeli response was, we get at least twice that, sometimes three times that in a year. 
The land of Israel is a special place. God's eyes are upon it. And we live in a world where increasingly people say, you have something, I don't have it, I'm going to take it. That seems to be the motivation, at least given to us by the prophet Ezekiel, for the battle of Gog and Magog. That's not the motivation for the battle of Armageddon. In fact, God is credited with bringing these people according to his prophecy. It will be the demons that come out of the mouth of the false prophet and the beast that bring the armies of the world together for the battle of Armageddon. And so, they try to put all of these things together. God says, I'm going to send an earthquake. We're not going to take time to do the cross-reference, but read the middle part of the tribulation and we come up and we find that there's a great earthquake and every mountain is moved out of its place. Every island is moved. Here it says every wall falls. It seems to uh, interlock fairly simply here. And then we come down to chapter 39 and the destruction of Gog and Magog. And this is an interesting thing. We look at verse 1, it says, Therefore, son of man, prophesy against Gog, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and leave but the sixth part of thee, and cause thee to come up from the north parts, and I will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel, and I will smite thy bow out of thy left hand, and will cause thine arrows to fall out of thy right hand. Thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and all my bands, and the people that is with thee I will give unto the ravenous birds of every sort, and to the beast of the field to be devoured. And so we come here and we see that the destruction will be nearly complete. Five, six, so divided up, uh, one-sixth of the army will survive the battle. Now, we've heard of armies uh, having extreme casualties. Normally, it doesn't approach anywhere near to this. And um, it says that their weaponry will provide fuel for seven years, that they won't cut down any wood. Now, where are you going to get wood from modern weapons? I don't know. Uh, but I do know that gun stocks are made out of plastic and wood and other things like that, and there's a lot of uh, uh, natural things that are used, and they are using composite materials uh, that do burn to make all kinds of things today. It's going to take seven months to bury the dead. In fact, they're going to put up a whole city. And the whole city's only responsibility is going to be burying the dead of the battle. And it says, when you walk down the valley of the passengers or the people that go through that part of the land, that uh, you won't hardly be able to breathe because of the cemetery 
of Gog and Magog and their directions. Now, here's the interesting part of this whole thing. Is God is always doing something. Go with me to verse 29. I mean, verse 21 of chapter 39. And I will set my glory among all the heathen, and all the heathen shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid upon them. Verse 22. So that the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day and forward. Now, we know that Israel is God's chosen people. Amen. The physical descendants of Abraham. They have many prophecies in the scriptures that are spoken about them. And when we get to the book of Romans, we have 9, 10, and 11 that talks about the nation of Israel being cut off because of their unbelief. We as Gentile believers being welded or, or transplanted into the natural olive tree uh, to the vine of Israel, the branches that are added, we call it being grafted in, and it tells you and I to beware, because if God spared not the natural branches, he's not going to spare us. But there's got to be a trigger somewhere in this that is going to cause Israel as a people to understand that Jesus Christ is their Messiah. Now, we read through the end of this chapter here, and this to me is the most interesting part of the whole thing, is because what it does is it says the battle of Gog and Magog is going to be that trigger. We have the Antichrist desecrating the temple, the abomination of desolation, We have the destruction of the armies of Gog and Magog on the mountains of Israel. And remember, nothing here happens at an isolated moment of time. You do not move great armies in days or hours. Remember, we have this army of 200 million men roaming around, killing a third part of the people that live on the face of the earth. We have Antichrist trying to exercise dominion over all the earth. One of the issues that is always brought up about the beast as he rises to power, who can make war against him? The nation of Israel, according to Ezekiel, is going to accept the victory in this battle as proof that God is taking care of them. And they are going to understand, if you'll read the last part of this chapter here, it says in verse 25, Therefore saith the Lord God, now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name after that they have borne their shame and all their trespasses, whereby they have trespassed against me, when they dwelt safely in their land, and none made them afraid. When I have brought them again from the people and gathered them out of their enemies' lands, and I am sanctified 
in the sight of many nations, then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them unto their own land and have left none of them any more there. Neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. Now, it's a very dangerous thing to speak for God. But what we see here is God moving circumstance to bring back corporate Israel as a people that believe in God. How many of you know what the state religion, the, the actual sanctioned religion of the state of Israel is? How many of you think it's Judaism? No. Nope. Atheism. Look it up in any encyclopedia. That is the official religion of Israel. And just watch what's going on in the land. They've just sent out a draft notice to all the ultra-Orthodox Jewish people, and they're getting upset. Um, but Israel has only survived because of its army. Antichrist ensures them peace. They dwell safely. Russia and its confederation decides to test the power of Antichrist and is destroyed. We then have the children of Israel realizing that only God did this, not the beast, not anybody else. And they turn to God. Then begins the persecution of the nation of Israel, which happens after the abomination of desolation, the desecration of the Jewish temple. All of these things come into play, and Israel is brought to a point to where they believe in Jesus Christ. And this battle of Gog and Magog, if we just read carefully what's here, try not to read into it, try not to make it fit. Yes, I know there are similarities. The buzzards are going to eat this ba after this battle, and they're going to eat after the battle of Armageddon too. But uh, the simple truth is, there are so many dissimilarities between the two that I believe the best way to understand this is as a completely separate event that will occur sometime within the first seven weeks, probably fairly close to the middle of the tribulation period. And we have the most agreement with the most passages of Scripture by taking that tack on this passage. There are going to be tests for Antichrist power. He is not just going to walk up and all of a sudden be in charge of the whole world. No kingdom has ever done that. He rises up out of the sea. This may be part of his rising. Is the destruction of these forces that would stand against him. 
and he will be able to establish his kingdom. It won't last long. And if we understand correctly, during this first half of the tribulation, we have the two witnesses prophesying to the Jewish people in the land of Israel. They are overcome at the midpoint. And it just almost looks like the pieces of a puzzle. I wish I could draw. I I would put this together in a picture form, but I can't do it. Uh, I hope I've been able to paint some pictures with words that haven't been too confusing tonight. Uh, Maybe I'll get... Everybody go, uh... uh, Okay, good. Most of everybody's together here. And what we're trying to do is pick up other passages that deal with end-time events and see how they plug in to the timeline, the scope and sequence of the book of Revelation. We have the Israel. The trigger occurs here where they turn from their own religion and their own self and turn back to the God of the Bible. This is the connection. They will not be saved a different way than you and I are saved. They must put their faith and trust in the God of the Bible. Amen? And that God of the Bible sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. And in Zechariah's prophecy, it talks about at the end of the tribulation period that they will see Jesus And they will mourn for him because they have rejected him. You know what the Bible tells us? That is the response of a penitent sinner. Amen? That is the proper response when we come face to face with God. We see these nations aligning today. Does that make you a little afraid? Or does that make you want to go, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen? That ought to be our response. The Bible tells us that we ought to allow the urgency of the day to cause us to be just a little more intense in our witnessing. Now, we've got to be careful. That word intense is a good word, and it's a bad word. Uh Some of you will remember we had another little group of people in Astoria for a while who would stand on the street corner and scream right in people's ears as they passed them by and tried to tell them of their sin. And they claimed to be Bible Baptists just like we are. And it was a little frustrating because I didn't want to be identified with that. That was rude. That's not the intensity what we're talking about. Who saves souls? God does. What is our job? To point them toward Christ. Now, how do we point them toward Christ? They shall know ye are Christians by your great Bible knowledge, right? Does anybody remember the verse? They shall know you are Christians by your what? Love one for another. 
If I love Christ, what do I do? I love the brethren. If I love the brethren, what do I do? Give the greatest testimony to this world of who Jesus Christ is. Amen? That's what we need to be busy about. You must tell others of the gospel message. Amen? But if your life doesn't match your message, we're in trouble. And we've got to ask God to use us to reach our world because these events are going to happen. Do you think someone a hundred years ago could have foreseen what you and I see today? Let's go back to the year 1912. There were a small group of people who said, according to the Bible, Israel must go back to its land and be reestablished as a nation. You know what most people did? They laughed at them. But they were reading their Bible and literally understanding the Scripture in these events toward the end time, sometimes for the very first time in many, many years. Now, in the first century... Before 70 A.D., it wasn't too hard to imagine Israel living in its own land, because they were. But from 70 A.D. until 1948, they weren't. And in 2012, there are still huge portions of the land of Israel that are the occupied West Bank and occupied territories and all of these things. You want to know who's going to solve the problems of land in the Middle East? The Antichrist. It's not going to last very long. But he's going to solve those problems. And that's going to be one of the triggers that gets the Russian Confederation to try to destroy the land of Israel from the north. Not going to happen. And when that army is defeated, Israel is going to be realized that Jesus Christ and the the God of the Old Testament are one. And that's what we're waiting for. Amen? And these things... uh, Do you think they're going to happen exactly the way preacher said so tonight? I doubt it. None of us know for sure. But I will tell you this. The events, the pieces of the puzzle, will lay on the table the ones that we have in relation to each other very simply if we'll do it this way. If we try to make this the battle of Armageddon, we've got to change some scripture. We've got to make some things that contradict each other, not contradict each other. If we take them as two separate events and put them in, we see this battle as the trigger that moves Israel toward belief in the true God of the Bible.
And over and over again in these two chapters, he says, I will be glorified in my people. I will show my people that I am in charge. From this day forward, we read that verse. I'll tell you what. God is going to show his glory to Israel. And the world is going to know that this fellow called the Antichrist is not what he claims to be. Is that going to stop them from following him? Absolutely not. But what should we do? We should look at our world and realize how close we must be. And get ourselves ready and be about the Lord's business till he comes. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your love. We thank you for what is in your word. And Lord, we, we just put our understanding of your word at the foot of the cross. And Lord, pray that you would give us grace to see if we've made uh, extreme errors or if we know enough that will keep us serving you until you come. Lord, there are so many unknowns, yet we can see the coalitions forming that the Bible prophesies of. We see the jealousies and the disparity of goods and wealth that the Bible speaks about in this chapter already occurring. It's not an abnormal thing. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves and ask that the Holy Spirit would give us a godly intensity. Not that we would charge the powers of the world and try to uh, derail the very things that your word says are going to happen. But that we would love one another. Of course, if we want to love one another, we must love you. Because as we love you, your love will flow through us and touch others' lives. We want you to use us to give a testimony of your love to the world in which we live. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Before we finish that prayer, we'll just keep our heads bowed. If you'd like to slip out and spend a few moments talking to the Lord, the altar is open. And then we'll sing a song and be dismissed. But if you need to pray, now is the time.